If it's 6 p.m. on a Thursday, that means it's time for Lehigh Valley Discourse here on WDIY 88.1 FM, WDIY.org, and our WDIY app. And we start off with Perspectives with John Pierce. Welcome. Our engineer this evening is Sarit Lashinsky, doing our board work for us. My guest this evening, Carla Messinger, who is director of Native American Heritage Programs, and she's a presenter for the Pennsylvania Humanities Council's Commonwealth Speakers Bureau, a consultant for the Pennsylvania Humanities Council. So several titles here for Carla. Carla, no stranger to our WDIY microphones. Carla, welcome back. Wanishi, thank you. Wanishi. Oh, that's so much more interesting than thank you, huh? Wanishi. Well, it means thank you and you're welcome. All right. We cover both ends. In Lenape. In Lenape. All right. So Carla is a descendant of Lenape, and her passion is talking about Native Americans, specifically Lenape, but Native Americans in general, And this evening's topic is, I think, going to surprise our listeners. That is, because it surprised me, Native Americans' contributions to football. So, Carla, give us a little hint here. How far back does this go? Well, this goes way back to the beginning of football. And this is how Native Americans saved it. It survived and thrived because the smart, physically gifted Native people outlive their stay in a genocidal institution known as the Indian Boarding School. The background for this is that now September 30th is a National Day of Remembrance for the Native children who lived and died in these schools. Mass, unmarked graves continue to be discovered in 408 schools in 37 states in the United States. They were in operation from 1819 to 1996. At their prime, they were run by the government and or religious organizations. They enrolled as many as 60,000 students a year. The children, as young as four, were forcibly taken from their families and cultures. They were forced to have a haircut, new language, clothing, customs, and indoctrinated into the white Christian society. The goal was to civilize and assimilate them by killing the Indian and saving the man. Wow. That is in, you have that in quotes. Yes, I do. Because that, that was usually said when they had meetings and on, on their paperwork for these places, that was their goal. And Dartmouth historian Preston McBride estimates as many as 40,000 of those children died from poor care, abuse, disease, and are buried in graves throughout the U.S. Wow. But there is a connection to Pennsylvania. The first of these now infamous off-reservation institutions was the Carlisle Indian School, founded in 1879. And in 1907, they had a football team, coached by the already famous Glenn Pop Warner, who's considered the father of modern football. Yes, you hear, we hear about the Pop Warner Leagues yep. uh, all over the country, and I never knew that his first name was Glenn. So Pop Warner. Yep. And um, people like Jim Thorpe, who was born in Oklahoma and raised as a Sac Fox Indian, was a part of that team. So the beginning of football was 38 years earlier. 
The first game in the nation was played between Princeton and Rutgers. They believe the intense physical sport was developed to give the well-bred white men coming of age after Gettysburg and the Battle of Little Bighorn a rigorous training and strategic skills they needed to become military leaders. So, so there's a connection between the military training right. and football. Right. Football was part of their training. Yeah. Wow. And this just happened a few decades after the natives and soldiers clashed at Wounded Knee, the Carlisle Indian League, pardon me, the Carlisle Ivy League, gridiron face-offs, were a war without death, the goal being to take land by gaining yards through brute force. Wow. War without death. Right. Yeah, but it wasn't quite true. Wait till you hear the other information (laughs) I have for you. I can't wait. Pop Warner tried to find a way to save the game. The native players were smaller and lighter than their big husky opponents, and they didn't have as good a diet either. So he had to compensate. He used their amazing speed, agility, and cleverness in people like Jim Thorpe to include reverses, feints, the flashy double lateral pass, plays involving handoffs, and even hiding the ball trick. (laughs) These Plays allowed the quick-thinking, fast-moving natives to work around the massive brute force by the Army, Navy, and other elite colleges. He also introduced the overhand forward pass in 1907. Carlisle with Thorpe defeated the powerful University of Pennsylvania team 26-6. They trounced them. Yes, they did. And that was before an overfull crowd of 20,000 people at Franklin Field. Two months later, they bested the perennial powerhouse Harvard. Now we're talking 1907. Right. So, and we can't we can't imagine football today without the forward pass. Right. That and that's, was that's that's a big thing. And when you look thing. at the people today, you see the helmet and the padding, but we're talking about a leather helmet tight to your head. Yes. We're talking about wool, cotton, and stuff like that. So they didn't have the padding. They didn't have the protection. They didn't have a mouth guard. They didn't have the helmet. They didn't even have decent running shoes. And I bet they didn't talk about concussions in those days. No. Concussions weren't heard of. You just got up off the ground and played again. Yeah, if you were able to walk. Well, (laughs) that was not good. A lot of people didn't. So although Carlisle posted an 11 to 1 record in 1911, the most famous gridiron battle took place in 1912. Just 22 years after Wounded Knee, the players ran onto the army field inspired by Pop Warner's words, your fathers and grandfathers fought their fathers. Your Indians tonight will know if you're warriors. Wow. And they found out because it was 27 to 6. And the army team that was so overwhelmed by the lighter native people had guys like General Dwight Eisenhower and Omar Bradley on the team. How interesting. Yes, it was. Now, that famous route route included 92- and 97-yard touchdowns by Thorpe, (laughs) who became All-American honors in 1911 and 1912. But there was a really great threat to football. And in 1908 to 1909, despite his effective use of the forward pass, which was legalized in 1906. The teams were still playing a brutal smash-mouth running games. We talked before about people not being able to get off the ground. Yes. 31 related deaths because of football. Oh. So the rest of that season was canceled. That meant today you might not have football if it weren't for the Native people because 
There were some rule changes in 1913. They had an aerodynamic ball that was improved upon, and the spiral throw could go 40 to 50 yard passes. That changed from a ground brawl where people were getting slaughtered and pylons to a more strategic aerial game. Right. So, who defeated the Giants in 1927? Okay, the last season that the Carlisle School closed at the end of 1917 to 18 school year, and that was it for that. But, like Jim Thorpe in the 1920s, many of the Carlisle teams played professionally in what became the National Football League. In Oklahoma in the 1920s and 30s, 22 tribes came together to form what they called the Hominy Indians, who in 1927 defeated the NFL champion New York Giants. I never heard of the Hominy Indians. I never heard of those. Yeah, well, that was just these groups that came together. 1927 defeated the New York Giants. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's kind of ironic that the Native Americans targeted for extinction survived to save football and contribute so much to the culture that was committed to killing them. Indeed. So connection between the Native Americans who had these, this great star, uh, Jim Thorpe, and football, of course, as we know it today, changed so much with the, as you mentioned, the, the uniforms being changed and all the rules changes and whatnot. But so interesting to know that there was a connection between Native Americans and the sport of football. I have something that Carla gave me that says in 1912, Jim Thorpe had his running shoes stolen the morning of his Olympic track and field events because he was an all-around athlete. Right. Uh, He he did did everything. He did it all. He was even a good ballroom dancer. Oh. Yes. That I didn't know. (laughs) So his running shoes had been stolen. He found a mismatched pair of shoes in the garbage and ran in them to win two Olympic gold medals that day in 1912. Yeah, 1912 was the year of the Olympics that Jim Thorpe shone. Right, the decathlon, jumps. He could, when when, uh, he was at Carlisle, he came in from working in the fields with his overalls and his clodhopper-type footwear, and he was watching them jump, all this stuff. And he was looking back and forth, and he said, I could do that, and he did. And he said, you know, if I had lighter shoes, I might even be better. (laughs) You know, he was born, Jim Thorpe was born in Oklahoma. How did he make it to Pennsylvania? Why? What's the connection there? The government would just go in and take children away from their families at age four and drag them hundreds or thousands of miles away so they couldn't run back home. Oh. And then when you see pictures of the Carlisle Indian School, the before pictures and after pictures, it's, it's so dramatic because their hair was cut, they were beaten if they used their language or if they prayed or did anything that was considered native. So they were trained to take the place, literally take the place of the slaves who had been freed. They were trained uh, to do housework, the girls, you know, sewing and cleaning and the boys did farming and blacksmithing, all these things. And then they got hired out for like a penny or three or four or whatever the going rate was a day to do this work. But they were living on the farms. They were abused there. They could be starved. 
trying to run home, you got picked up and taken back to the school and then more abuse and isolation. And they didn't have the medicines they have today, but they didn't get the medical care they needed, and they didn't have a good enough diet. But the plan was to replace the freed slaves with native labor. Interesting. My guest this evening on Perspectives is Carla Messinger, and she is director of Native American Heritage Programs, and she's a presenter for Pennsylvania Humanities Council's Commonwealth Speakers. We're going to give information on how you can get in touch with Carla when we come back from our break. It's time for us to take a break right now. Stay with us, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is Perspectives by John Pierce on WDIY 88.1 FM, WDIY.org, and our WDIY app. Spread the word about your business or organization to a well-informed audience. Become an underwriter with WDIY. Our lineup of NPR news and locally produced programs reaches thousands of engaged listeners in the Lehigh Valley and beyond. Underwriting on WDIY is an affordable and effective way to provide information about your product and services to people who care. To learn more about underwriting opportunities, 610-694-8100, extension 6, or WDIY.org. Celtic Fair, a celebration of Celtic music and culture, from its roots in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Galatia, and Brittany, to its branches in Australia, Cape Breton, Canada, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley. Bringing you music, interviews, and a weekly culture calendar every Thursday from 7 to 9 on WDIY Allentown listener-supported community public radio. And we're back on Perspectives with... My guest, Carla Messinger. I'm your host, John Pierce. And working the board for us, Sarit Lashinsky. We're talking about a subject that I bet you didn't know, and that is the influence of Native Americans in our sport of football and how it developed through the years. And, Carla, this goes way back to the Civil War or just after the Civil War? Right, after the Indian Wars out west. And the connection between this sport and the development of soldiers to fight should the need arise again. Uh, Fascinating to me. Now, Carla speaks around wherever she is asked to speak. And tell us a little bit about your speaking engagements. Um, I work with children. I work with adults. That means schools, libraries, historical societies, social groups, like the Red Hat Ladies or the DAR, the Moose, maybe festivals and other places. Um, We try to give people a better understanding of Native American culture. Uh, We have one about Native Americans in the Civil War, what Ken Burns didn't tell you. Yeah, that's it's really a a fun and exciting one, uh, especially for the Civil War buffs. Uh, we have one on the role of Native women, strong women, strong nations. Talks about past and present for Native women. And we're going to talk about that in another interview that you're going to do with us here on Perspectives later on. So we have about Native American contributions and one called What You Know That Isn't So that talks about stereotypes and myths so that you can have the right information. I talk about the Lenape culture here. We have a, a nice variety that people can choose from, and sometimes we do nature's supermarket when the weather's just right in the summer, mm. 
And we talk about the different native plants and the plant uses, things like that. So we give people a background. Uh, a lot of that was carried forward with the Pennsylvania Dutch people because the, the Germans came over, intermarried with some of the Lenape. And so that got put into the Pennsylvania Dutch culture. Interesting how these cultures overlap. Yeah, they do. It's mixed. really a fun thing to learn about. You talk about local Lenape, parenthesis, Delaware people. Is Lenape the same as Delaware? Not really. Uh, Lenape means the people. Lena Lenape means the true people, the original people. And then the king sent Lord Delaware to the Virginias because they were misbehaving. And the first thing he said, you don't go to church on Sunday, you're hung to your dead. So the people up here in Pennsylvania said, we don't want this guy here as a tourist. And so they renamed the River of the Lenape people after Lord DeLuere, and that word became smushed into Delaware. And then they started calling the Lenape people as if they were a possession of Lord DeLuere. <laughs> Interesting. And we're talking this evening about the Native Americans changing football. So in 1912, a Native American football team led by Jim Thorpe and coach Pop Warner, and that name Pop Warner comes up frequently today, much more frequently than Jim Thorpe's name does because there are Pop Warner leagues all over for young folks learning to play football. They defeated the U.S. Military Academy on the fields at West Point, which you mentioned before trouncing a team that included Eisenhower and Patton. The astonishing winning streak of the Carlisle Indians changed American football into the strategic thinking man's game that it is today. And when I hear uh, announcers, and I'm a fan of football, and when I hear the announcers talking about how complex it is to figure out from the quarterback's Mm -hmm. standpoint what is likely to happen what the opposition has lined up, and how they might have to change the play that they're about to embark on, it it does sound very complex. Though I never played the sport, but I enjoy watching it. The uh, Oklahoma Hominy Indians football team, that's one that's new to me, defeated the Giants, you mentioned that. And this connection between the American Indians, uh, Native Americans, and Football is really interesting to me. Now, we talk about Jim Thorpe, and we've talked about him being the most famous athlete, safe to say, of the American Indians, uh, would be Jim Thorpe. But there are others. Right, and I'll, I'll give you a few more things about Jim Thorpe. He got to be on a Wheaties box. Oh, yes. First name person on a Wheaties box. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> but what you don't know about one of those trick plays is the Pop Warner had the jersey, the sweat part, with a little pocket in it. Uh And so they were passing the ball between each other out there on the field. Yes. And the opponents were at a loss because they couldn't figure out where the ball was. Someone (laughs) was running, and it looked like they had the ball, and they went after that person. (laughs) And then the guy who really had the ball just ran down, did the goal, and that was it. Made a touchdown. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and made the touchdown. So that later on was considered illegal. But they yeah. didn't have it before on the record books as being illegal, so they did it. So when I think about sports and the 1912 Olympics, he did the pentathlon, the decathlon. He had awards, 
and he had fans in every major sport. He did baseball, football, basketball, track and field, if you can believe all that, with one person who was a good dancer. So during that Olympics, there were other Native people that got overlooked. You have Louis, oh boy, here's a hard one. Okay, it's spelled T-E-W-A-N-I-M-A. That's his last name, which is a long, hard one. So he was put in Carlisle as well. They were virtually prisoners of war, as uh, the school superintendent, Moses Friedman, explained to people that, wow. that the Native kids were prisoners, considered prisoners of war. So he was a Hopi, and as a kid, he would run around the different mesas. He was only 110 pounds. He was tiny and scrawny, and no one really realized it, but Pop Warner did. He told him, me run fast good. <laughs> and after clocking his times, he said, yeah, you are. And with just a minimum of training in less than a year, he was competing in the 1908 Summer Olympics in London. And he competed with Frank Mount Pleasant, who was Tuscarora. And they were up against the world's most rigorously trained runners. He placed ninth in that marathon. And that was three hours, nine minutes, 15 seconds. It was virtually unknown. And he caught the eye of Theodore Roosevelt, who said, this is one of the originals. So when 1912 rolled around, he returned with Jim Thorpe. Neither was required to compete in a qualifying trial. That's how much confidence people had in their abilities. So Lewis won the silver medal, 10,000 meters, with a time of 3206.5, a record that stood for 50 years until the Ogallala Lakota runner Billy Mills broke it to win the gold medal in 1964. So uh, a Native American broke the record of, of a another Native American. Native American. Now, Carla, I want to go back to Jim Thorpe for just a minute and tell us how it came to be that the town of Jim Thorpe used to be Mock Chunk. Right. And, and what the change of name there? Well, for Bear, Bear Mountain... Um, what happened was the people in that area were against another bidding to have a Hall of Fame. And because Jim Thorpe was so well-known in so many sports, they thought he'd be the big draw that would give them the Hall of Fame. So they made arrangements with a family who couldn't afford to bury him, they were that poor off, uh, that they would bury him and they'd have, you know, Bury him in, in the spot Jim, that is right, Jim Thorpe in today. in the spot that is Jim Thorpe. And they renamed it Jim Thorpe, and they lost the bid for the Hall of Fame. So he was not buried there. Oh, he was. He's buried outside of Jim Thorpe. Yeah. There's a beautiful explanation as to his name and what it means and all of his accomplishments. It's like an outdoor park. You can yeah. drive there and see it for yourself. Okay. So he was buried there, but they did not get the Hall of Fame. They that did they were not get the for. Hall of Fame. Then over the years, the family members wanted his body back, and it's gone back and forth in court several times. So I don't know what the status is right now. So that's kind of between Oklahoma and Pennsylvania. Right. Yes. Talking about Native Americans' contributions to sports, and particularly football, but other sports also, the Olympic competitions, here on Perspectives by John Pierce. Thanks for tuning in this evening. Carla, let's talk about some of the other Native Americans who have made a splash. Oh, in they sports. certainly have. 
1912, I want to introduce you to the Bronze Duke of Waikiki, the father of surfing. The Duke. Ooh. Yes. He was the state's greatest athlete in Hawaii. He was also their ambassador of Aloha. He participated in five games. He earned three gold medals, two silver medals, set the world record in a 100-yard freestyle over the course of his career. In 1913, he had the U.S. Indoor Champion. He became the outdoor title holder in 1916 and repeated that again in 1920. He developed the flutter kick that everyone is so familiar with. Oh, yes. It came from the Duke. And he popularized modern surfing. He was the king of surfing. And he even went to Sydney, Australia to teach eager would-be surfers how to carve their own longboards and promoted the sport. Now, when we think of Native Americans, maybe I speak for myself, I don't think of their influence in our sports. I think of the conflicts going way back to the days that the pilgrims arrived here and they're being forced onto reservations and the uh, Trail of Tears and that kind of thing. But I I find this um, topic of their participation in sports, the fact that they got Teddy Roosevelt's attention, uh, really fascinating. And um, people at that time didn't even notice that they were natives. They didn't all look like what you see in the movies. So, you know, oh, he's native? (laughs) Yeah. Would they know by the name? Sometimes, yes. Uh, But then sometimes, no, because a lot of them had taken, they were forced to take Christian names. Oh. So that might change, or a family might adopt them, and they might wind up with their name. Right. So they, they were practicing their culture as best they could in the boarding schools. And then... This gave them the training they needed to continue on. Like with the Duke, he went around and he taught how to surf. He died at 77 in uh, 1968. Uh They had a ceremony. They scattered his ashes. And um, the departing words were, God gave him to us as a gift from the sea. And now we give him back from whence he came. Carla Messinger, my guest this evening on Lehigh Valley Discourse Perspectives. Carla, thanks so much for coming once again to our microphones. Let's let listeners know how they would get in touch with you if they wish to hear one of your programs. Okay, I have a website, lenapeprograms.info, spelled L-E-N-A-P-E-P-R-O-G-R-A-M-S dot I-N-F-O. I have an email, P-A-Lenape at enter.net. That's P-A, like the state of Pennsylvania, L like in lemon, E like in eat, N like in no, A-P-E, like a big hairy monkey, at E-N-T-E-R dot net. Um, I try to answer my emails at least once a week. On my website, I have almost 100 pages. There are pages for children, adults, teachers, parents. uh, All ages. Contemporary uh, issues, the role of women in the military, lots of different articles there links that they can follow. My children's book, When the Shad Bush Blooms, is on the website. You can see and hear it on the website. All right. It's time for us to wrap it up for this evening. Thanks, Carla. Wanishi, thank you. Wanishi, love it. And dear listeners, thanks for tuning in. Until we meet again, remember to be gentle with your neighbor. <laughs>